I did. I threw one party. I have never talked about these things publicly, ever. And everything about what was happening in that house was something I felt I had to keep to myself and to keep private and never, ever, ever talk about to anybody. I was negotiating something, and I remember seeing myself, and I remember dropping the phone out of my ear, and it fell on the floor, and I remember thinking to myself, if I keep this up, I'm going to end up on a bar stool saying, it should have been me. And I put the cigarette down and that beer, and I put that beer down and I did not drink or smoke or do any recreational drugs. For eight years. Welcome to the Kevin Spacey Trial Unfiltered. This is episode eight. Kevin Spacey Speaks. My name is Anne McElhenney. Pull your chair up to the mic. If you can please state your name and spell your last name for the record. Kevin Spacey Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R. You may proceed, Mr. Skolnick. Thank you, Your Honor. The time had come in the trial of Kevin Spacey Fowler for the defendant to take the stand. In some ways, everyone knew what Kevin Spacey was going to say. He was pleading not liable to the charge, right? But for the jury, his testimony wasn't going to be just about what he said, but also about how he said it. He had to appear honest and sympathetic, more so than Anthony Rapp. Members of the jury would probably know him through his villainous roles, but he had to break through that veneer and speak to them as a person unjustly accused. Spacey's lawyer, Chase Skolnick, cleared the air immediately with his first question to the defendant. What follows are reenactments of their exchanges using actual court transcripts. Good morning, Mr. Spacey. Good morning. Now, Mr. Rapp has accused you of picking him up and placing him on a bed in 1986. Are those allegations true? They are not true. During Rapp's testimony, his lawyers asked him easy questions that he could answer in meandering detail to show he was a child prodigy whose early promise was apparently destroyed by Spacey's assault. Spacey's lawyers had a different approach to their client. His career spoke for itself. What they needed to show were the parts of Spacey's life that no one knew about. That this deeply private man had left unspoken for decades. They got him talking about his dysfunctional childhood. Spacey's answers cast a new light on his intense privacy. Mr. Rapp has criticized you for being so private, and he's called that living in the closet. Has that privacy extended to matters beyond your sexual orientation? Yes, it has. Have you been private about your childhood as well? Yes, I have. Why? Um, well, I grew up in a very complicated family dynamic. Um, 
My father was unemployed a great deal of the time, so therefore he was home a lot of the time. We moved many, many different times, and over the course of my father's unemployment and the reasons he was trying to find why he was unsuccessful in the business he wanted to be in, which was to be a creative writer, my father fell in with some ideas and some people that I believe damaged his mind and his sensibility. And my father was a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi. How is it that that impacted you as a child? Well, first of all, it meant that my siblings and I were forced to listen to hours and hours and hours of my father lecturing his about his beliefs and his ideas. And it was these lectures that my hatred of bigotry and intolerance really first began. But at the same time, it was humiliating and terrifying to even consider bringing my friends home to my house because I was terrified of what my father might say to them and then what my friends might think of me because of what my father might say. And I had seen him do this with guests. So my best friend in high school, who was Jewish, who is still a great friend of mine to this day, I couldn't bring him to my house. And everything about what was happening in that house was something I felt I had to keep to myself and to keep private and never ever, ever talk about to anybody. Is it difficult for you to talk about these things now? I have never talked about these things publicly, ever. Despite this repressive environment, Spacey's mother nurtured his love of performance. When did you develop an interest in acting? Um, I think from when I was very young. I was shy as a kid, but I was fortunate that my mother loved movies and music, and so I was introduced to a sort of uh, different generation of movie stars from the 30s and 40s and 50s and the sort of great music. So I think I first discovered that I liked performing because I found out I had an ear for impressions and I could learn how to do some of my mother's favorite actors and their voices. So for me, because of the situation in my house... Being able to hear my mother laugh was one of the greatest sounds I ever heard. So I think that was my initial feeling, was I could make my mother laugh. And that was a form of performance. Childhood shapes nearly every aspect of a person's life. Remember how rap disparaged Spacey and other suspected gay actors who remained in the closet Maybe Spacey's reasons for keeping his sexuality private had less to do with fear of professional reprisal and more to do with his upbringing. Before October of 2017, had you told any media outlet or reporter that you were gay? No. Why not? Um, as I said, I had grown up in a situation as a child where I wasn't comfortable talking about things. And part of those things that were... My father also used to um, yell at me about the idea that I might be gay because I was interested in theater and he didn't encourage me in that way. So my father would scream at me, don't be a... And he would use an F word that is very derogatory to the gay community. I won't say it here in court, but it was very disturbing for me as I was just beginning to discover my own feelings about sexuality. And as I continued in my life, I think I just... I certainly had a degree of shame, but I think also because I wanted people to remember the characters that I played and not to know too much about me. I think I spent quite a bit of time actually talking about that I didn't want people to know too much about me. I wanted people to remember characters and not remember me. 
So that was my reasoning, was that I was protecting the work. But I think that I was going through as many complicated and difficult questions about the idea of sharing the most intimate part of myself for a very long time. Now, we've heard references in this trial to certain articles in which Mr. Rapp is quoted calling you a fraud for not coming out of the closet sooner. How do you respond to that? I think that I've... Judge, I object to the question. Overruled. I think that I've listened to so many leaders in the LGBTQ plus community about how we have to have empathy and we have to have understanding and we have to have compassion for everyone's process of coming out. And so I think that to call someone a fraud is to, I guess, say that you think they are living a lie. I wasn't living a lie. I was just reluctant to talk about my personal life. And I had had relationships with women in my life that meant an enormous amount to me that were genuine relationships. Mr. Raps talked about having relationships with women as well, and so I don't know on what basis he was saying that I was a fraud. I think it's clear that he was angry I wasn't out, but... Objection. Overruled. But it was my choice. And even though politically someone may not agree with it, we have to respect that it's a very difficult process. And it was difficult for me because by the time rumors started about me and sort of the media and people asking questions, I was very well known. And so it was very complicated for me to think about coming out and the consequences of that, which were at a very different time than we are now. You're referring to rumors about you being gay, correct? Yes. Spacey told how he moved to New York to go to Juilliard, but dropped out after a year because he wanted to act, not study. One of his first roles was in the public theatre in the Shakespeare in the Park production of Henry IV. It was during this time Andrew Holtzman said Spacey assaulted him. Spacey denied the attack. Now, Mr. Holtzman has accused you of going into his office and groping him. Did you ever grope or grab Mr. Holtzman? I did not. Did you ever throw him on a desk? I did not. Were you out of the closet in 1981? No, I was not. Did you want your colleagues to know that you were gay? No, I did not. Why not? Well, I mean, in the first place, I wasn't even entirely sure what I was. I was trying to figure out what I was, but I certainly wasn't comfortable except if I felt there was something mutual happening with somebody else, and I might have an experience, but I wasn't... There weren't things I was talking about. I wasn't, like, going to a gay bar. I was too terrified to do such a thing. Spacey told the jury how, after spending many days in that storage warehouse in Baltimore, he had found the original playbill from the performance. His photograph was not on it. This destroyed Holtzman's claim to have recognized him from that playbill. He also described how it would have been impossible for the two of them not to have run into each other again, as Holtzman had claimed. Now, Mr. Holtzman testified that he never saw you at the public theater after the summer of 1981. Do you believe that statement is accurate? That would be impossible. Were you at the public theater after 1981, the summer? Yes, I was. What were you doing at the public theater after the summer of 1981? I was working in a series of administrative jobs that I started either late September or early October, and that lasted until at least the beginning of May 1982. 
Now, we heard Mr. Holtzman testify that he was in and out of Mr. Papp's office all the time. Did you ever work in Mr. Papp's office? Yes. I mean, I didn't have a desk there, but if there was something they needed me to do, yes, I would be working in Mr. Papp's office. Mr. Spacey, would actors and employees of the public theater come in and out of Mr. Papp's office regularly? Yes. Would that include Mr. Holtzman? Yes. Did you see Mr. Holtzman in Mr. Papp's office? Yes. Did it appear he saw you? Yes. Spacey was questioned at length about all the times he had met Andrew Holtzman whilst working at the public theater. Remember, Holtzman said he had never seen Spacey before or after the alleged assault. Did the public show films? Were there screenings? Yes, there was a screening theater in the public theater. Did you ever go to any of those screenings? I did. And which specific employees of the public would put those screenings on? Well, in addition to Fabiano Canosa, who ran and programmed the films, there was also a man named Mr. Holtzman at the public program. And how many of those screenings, if any, did you go to? I mean, I think it's not completely accurate in my brain, but I think maybe I went to four of them. Did you see Mr. Holtzman at those screenings? Yes. Did it appear that he saw you? Yes. And of course, Spacey being Spacey, he had photos and articles showing he was a regular fixture in the building at the time. He would even get his mail delivered to the public. He still had the envelopes and letters retrieved from boxes in that warehouse in Baltimore. In short, the jury was left with no doubt that Holtzman would have seen Spacey before and after the assault, contrary to the evidence he gave. Almost nothing about the story checked out. Then it was on to Anthony Rapp's allegations, back to May 1986. Jennifer Keller had already explained how Spacey wound up going to dinner and a club with two people still in their teens when she cross-examined Rapp. John Barrowman, who was an adult, hit it off with Spacey, and that mutual attraction was a catalyst for what followed, she told the jury. It was not, as Rapp and BuzzFeed News previously implied, a case of Spacey picking underage boys from the crowd for a night out. What was your impression of Mr. Rapp when you met him that day, if you remember? I, it didn't make a big impression. He was a kid in a play, that's what I remember. And what was your impression of Mr. Barrowman? I was very impressed with Mr. Barrowman. Why? He was very handsome, he was charming, he had a sense of humor. Yeah, I was quite captivated by John Barrowman. What was the apparent age difference between Mr. Rapp and Mr. Barrowman to you? I didn't really know at that point, but Anthony Rapp seemed like a kid and John Barrowman seemed like a man. Everything Barrowman recalled about that night, Spacey confirmed. They danced at the club, went back to the apartment to see the dog, and shared a moment on the bed during Rapp's absence. He and Barrowman must have exchanged contact information since they both said they stayed in loose communication afterward. Spacey didn't remember inviting Rapp to a gathering a few days later. If it had seemed weird that Spacey was hosting parties at midnight, that's because it was weird. It didn't happen, he said. He detailed every part of his post-work ritual, which usually didn't see him getting home until 11.45. He wasn't in the habit of having people over at that hour, 
or really at all. Did you throw any parties at your apartment that we saw there, 37D, in 1986? I did. I threw one party. Tell us about that. Well, when I moved into the apartment, I moved in on January 15th, and then I had a housewarming party on the 25th of January. That was the only party I ever had in that apartment. Did you throw any parties in May of 1986 at that apartment? No, I did not. He also confirmed, as did everyone except Rapp, that the apartment was a studio with no bedroom door. Spacey also refuted Rapp's claim that he was drunk the night of the alleged assault, claiming that he didn't start drinking heavily until after the play had finished its New York run. His answers make it clear why, in one of his draft statements, he was going to blame his lack of memory on heavy drinking and drug use, But that was only because Adam Vary's email didn't say at what point in 1986 the assault allegedly occurred. Did there come a point in 1986 when you started drinking more heavily? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, when we left New York with production, we traveled to Israel and we performed for two weeks in Tel Aviv. And then we moved the production to London And we played a theater there called The Haymarket for, I think, almost four months, maybe three and a half months. I can't remember. And, you know, I'm a guy from New Jersey, and being in London doing a play was incredible. And I was much more comfortable with the play by that point. We were performing it for a lengthy period of time now. I felt more confident, and I was being introduced to all kinds of people I had never met and actors I admired. And I was being taken out to places and restaurants and bars and clubs. And I think that during, I would say, the latter part of the run in London, I started to indulge in a little more excessive recreational playtime than I had when we were in New York. You referenced this period of heavy drinking and using some drugs. How long did that last? Um, it went into, deeply went into 1987. It was toward the end of 1987 that I, I got offered a television series, and I, I remember the moment that I was on the phone with my manager, and I had a cigarette in my hand and a beer, and it was 9.30 in the morning. And I remember I was negotiating something, and I remember seeing myself, and I remembered dropping the phone out of my ear, and it fell on the floor, and I remember thinking to myself, if I keep this up, I'm going to end up on a bar stool saying, it should have been me. And I put the cigarette down and that beer, and I put that beer down, and I did not drink or smoke or do any recreational drugs for eight years. Skolnick questioned him a lot about the statement he put out in response to the BuzzFeed article. In it, Spacey seemed to conditionally apologize for something he now vigorously claimed did not happen. In earlier drafts, he outright apologized and blamed his lack of memory on heavy drinking. His lawyers wanted the jury to see it not as an apology, but as the product of the enormous pressure and confusion that surrounded its writing. As a reminder, Spacey was responding to a deliberately vague email from Adam Vary and BuzzFeed News which didn't specify the time of year or the city where the assault was alleged to have taken place. You wrote that at the bottom of the email. I hope and I pray that I can be forgiven for such an appalling moment over 30 years ago. 
Mr. Spacey, why did you include that in your email if you did not think these allegations were true? I was being encouraged to apologize, and I've learned a lesson, which is never apologize for something you didn't do. Do you regret conditionally apologizing to Mr. Rapp? I regret my entire statement. Spacey said his initial reaction was in response to pressure from his advisors. They were telling him the only way forward was to validate Rapp's feelings and to not accuse him of lying. At this point, Spacey was dealing with vague accusations and had no memories to rely on. It would be months before those crucial memories and the documents to substantiate them would resurface. Kevin, did you feel any pressure to issue a public statement on October 29th, 2017? Yes. Why? I was being advised that if I ignored it, I would be accused of having something to hide, that if I didn't put out a statement, it would not look good, and that I was encouraged I had to put out a statement that day. There was even people who wanted me to put out a statement before the article got printed. That I resisted, that because I felt that maybe when the article actually got printed, I could learn more information that I didn't have from the email from Adam Vary. I was feeling pressured that I had to take it seriously. I had to apologize in some form, and this was, you know, a very early draft in which I was attempting to try to find a way to do that. When you wrote this draft, did you think Mr. Rapp's allegations were true? No. Mr. Spacey... Are you confident that what Mr. Rapp alleges never occurred? I am 100% confident. Have you always been confident that what Mr. Rapp alleges never occurred? Yes. Then it was time for Spacey to be put under pressure. It was time for his cross-examination. Rapp's lawyer, Richard Steigman, wanted to demonstrate that Spacey's statement, which contained a quasi-apology, came from a place of truth even though Spacey now disowned it. He also asked, why apologize for something you have no memory of? But this line of questioning didn't really land. Apart from getting Spacey to admit that the apology and almost all of the rest of the statement was untrue, even though he had the final say over what it said, they were at least able to prove that Spacey was capable of saying something that wasn't true a significant admission in front of a jury looking for honesty. And you were synthesizing that advice and you were deciding what to do, fair? I eventually decided what to do, yes. The buck stops with you, right, sir? It does, in the end. Okay. Did you have a lot of respect for Anthony Rapp? I didn't really know Anthony Rapp. My question was, did you have a lot of respect for him? No, sir. Did you have admiration for him? He was a fellow actor. I know he had had success. My question is, did you have admiration for him? I appreciate him as an actor. I didn't know him that well. Sir, are you not understanding the question? I'm saying, yes or no, did you have admiration for Anthony Rapp? No. You wrote, I have no memory of this encounter. Was that true? That is still true. That's still true. You have no memory whatsoever of this encounter, right? That is correct. Are you still deeply sorry and shocked? It is not true, and I am not deeply sorry and shocked. Chutzpah is a uniquely American word. It has a Yiddish origin. I once saw it defined as, after being found guilty of murdering your parents, pleading to the court for mercy because you're an orphan. The word chutzpah springs to mind 
as Kevin Spacey was questioned by Anthony Rapp's lawyers as to why he had not reached out to John Barrowman when he first received the BuzzFeed email that made him aware of the allegations. Remember, the email came from Adam Vary, a journalist who had also failed to reach out to John Barrowman, even though he had a lot more time than Kevin Spacey. Anthony Rapp had also sent a few texts to John Barrowman, but had not followed up with any real vigour. Now Rapp's lawyers were asking Spacey why he hadn't immediately reached out to Barrowman, as Spacey should have known Barrowman would have been an important witness. Barrowman, by the way, when that light bulb went on, he was the one guy that could have given you some more information about your dealings with Anthony back then, right? I suppose so. He is somebody you knew, right? Well... He wasn't a friend of mine. But you knew who he was. You knew where you could find him, right? I I didn't have his phone number. I did at one point. Did you make an effort to get it? It was not something I considered. Richard Steigman was about to accuse Spacey of spinning a story based not on the facts, but using Barrowman's memories to create an exonerating narrative. When you made that pass at Mr. Barrowman, you said you don't remember whether or not Anthony Rapp was in the bathroom. Is that your testimony now? Yeah, I think I suffer from the curse of knowledge, because Mr. Barrowman mentioned that, and that seemed to make sense to me. But I don't think I remember that he went to the bathroom. But I do remember us getting up from the lying position. I do remember that interaction. So it made sense to me that if he had gone to the bathroom, he was coming out of the bathroom. When you talk about that curse of knowledge, you're saying that your testimony has been impacted by what Mr. Barrowman remembered, right? Yes, sure. You're adopting some of your memories to what he said, right? I'm only saying it made sense to me, even though I personally didn't recall it. Steigman also tried to reframe the awkward fact that the assault alleged by Rapp was almost a carbon copy of an assault that occurred in Precious Sons, the play Rapp had been acting in for months. He tried to make the case that Spacey had seen Precious Sons and got the idea to climb on top of Rapp because he watched that scene in the play. In a deposition two years earlier, Spacey had said he may have attended a performance of Precious Sons while Rapp was in the cast. But in court, he said that after reading the play, he was sure he had not seen it. In the end, Steigman failed to land any significant blows on Kevin Spacey. But there was still doubt as to whether the jury was convinced by the actor. Rapp's story had its problems. He struggled to explain how his memory could be infallible when it conflicted with hard facts. But Spacey had his statement, where he seemingly apologised for something he now claimed never happened. A careful reading of the statement would show it not to be an actual apology. But would the jury accept that and his subsequent regret about issuing it? Maybe Rapp's lawyers' criticisms about Spacey not contacting Barrowman or claims that he had tailored his evidence to match Barrowman's testimony would also sway the jury. Remember, they only had to be 51% certain. But on the other hand, Rapp hadn't come up with a good response to the apartment layout not even being close to what he remembered. Appeals to my truth couldn't really compete with numerous documents showing the apartment was a studio without a bedroom or a bedroom door. All that was left was for the lawyers to put everything in context 
and make their final appeals to the jury on behalf of their clients. Their closing arguments would solidify who was the victim in this case, the abused child prodigy Anthony Rapp or the falsely accused Kevin Spacey. In episode nine, we will hear the lawyers try to persuade the jurors one last time, and we will finally hear the jury's verdict. Was Anthony Rapp the victim, or were we all guilty of a rush to judgment? The trial of Kevin Spacey, unfiltered, is a project of the Unreported Story Society. It is researched and written by Phelan McAleer, Virginia Abram, and Anne McElhenney. Narrated by Anne McElhenney. Music, editing, and sound design by Mark Aramian. Produced by Phelan McAleer, Magdalena Segeda, and Anne McElhenney. Executive producers, Anne McElhenney, Magdalena Segeda, and Phelan McAleer. Reenactments directed by Kiff Skoll. Reenactments performed by Rob Nagel as Kevin Spacey, Clifford School as Judge Kaplan, Carl Davidson as Chase Skolnick, and James Dale as Richard Steigman. Recording engineers, Will Edmiston, Morgan Gerhardt.